the thing that's something that's uh, been uh, with me this since this morning, right? Let's say around five in the morning when I got up, and I just ended up watching something with Bezos, and then this was the thing that was very catchy to me. What is not going to change in the next five to ten years, Amitabh? What do you think is not going to change in at least the coming decade when it comes to our part of uh, the planet? So let, let let me start with the work I do, mm-hmm. and I, as a person, believe in a, an optimistic worldview. Yeah. So that's not a good question to start with, where you're saying what is not going to change. <laughs> I really want the world, the to, world change, to change. <laughs> the world to change to change dramatically, yeah. where we are able to create a more equal world. True. But. Uh, but to be honest, we are obviously looking at a very difficult future, mm. starting from the climate catastrophe yeah. to the growing inequality yeah. to the massive challenges that uh, we now see for democracy. Yeah. So it is a turbulent time for you to ask me this question. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm tearing up because of the sunscreen that I have on. <laughs> but obviously, <laughs> the thing is... I'm a, I try to stay as optimistic as I can, and I've been yelled at many times in my life <laughs> that I'm too optimistic, and I try to stay as positive as I can, especially with the youth, yeah. that there is a future. There is a future here. That's something that I've been advocating for for a long time. There's a future here itself. Oh, yeah, yeah. And no, no, I'm, I'm absolutely with you. And if somebody does not agree with you, you know, the best is, and I, I'm a student of social science, yeah. it's good to zoom out mm-hmm. and just ask them, what was the literacy rate in 1950, in 2000? You know, you need to zoom out. Yes, the immediate problems look very enormous. But if you just look at a time span of three, four decades, you will see the difference. As in, you will not need to make them optimistic. They will become optimistic. The world changes. Yeah. As in, just, just imagine that even in Europe, uh, till the 1970s, not every country had uh, women uh, voting rights. Till the 1970s, as in, can you imagine that's that? Not a, that's not long ago. Long ago. That's not long, long ago. Long ago. And, 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 and now look at the world, as in, we're really talking of, of gender justice in a very different way. So things change. Let's zoom out. Let's look at a longer perspective. Our job is to be optimistic. We And, and, and we need to contribute in shaping yeah. the new world. Yeah, yeah. That's, that, that's such a great way of putting it. And that's something that I'm going to actually start off with. Yeah. Uh, the first one of the first things that I wanted to dive into was obviously, obviously, the work that Oxfam has done. Just a gist of how your trip has been so far uh, over a period of, let's say, a week, slightly more than a week. Yeah, it's it's been more than a week. So, I would say this is in two parts. The first few days were completely dedicated to the World Social Forum, yeah, and which which was an absolutely fascinating experience. And the second part was working with Oxfam Nepal colleagues trying to understand. What's our work contributing to in Nepal? Yeah. Took me to Kanchinpur, took me uh, to villages in that, that area. So again, came back very inspired, not just by our work. You know, I would say that that's secondary, but I must con- congratulate my colleagues here. It was the resilience of the people there. Yeah, yeah. beautifully put. Beautifully put. Now let's get started with uh, with Oxfam Nepal, and then I'll, I'll dive back into the forum. Uh, how was Kanchanpur? And uh, share uh, some stories right in the get-go. Yeah. Once you got so, there. So okay. So 
Kanchanpur was uh, interesting mm-hmm. for me. It's it's closer home as an Indian. The language was easier for me to grasp uh, there. But what I thought was, you know, let, let, let me talk of two contrasting stories. Sure. Yeah? One is uh, how boundaries can divide people and create havoc with people's lives. We went to a village called uh, Kutia Kabra. And, and this must be uh, a full episode for you. <laughs> Just the name itself, Kutia Kabra. I couldn't understand. As in, does it really mean what I'm hearing? And I was told that the actual story of, for the name of the village is that there was a dog buried there. Mm-hmm. And because of that, it's called Kutia Kabar. But the story of that village is that you have the, the river, mm-hmm. some part tributary of Mahakali, uh, completely cutting them off. Mm. And then you have the village and then you have India. So for them to access their own mother Mark, yeah. mother country, they had no way. As in, they've got a bridge now, as in the, a small suspension bridge where only uh, humans can pass. So, they, you know, they had to go to school for hospital to India. So, it, it, you know, I just couldn't understand why would we divide boundaries so oblivious to human suffering or human needs. Mm-hmm. So it, 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 it was <laughs> troubling for me as I really don't believe in, 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 in boundaries. Uh, yeah, for our job is to actually break down, break boundaries. down boundaries. boundaries. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Also, that's, that's one. On the other hand, uh, but, but that community has also been very resilient. Mm-hmm. They, they, they have really now been, and, and every year their village gets completely flooded. And they need to go to a safe house. So they've made the safe house. They've reached out to local politicians, got the bridge done. So it's, it's, it's a story of human resilience that in spite all the odds, mm-hmm. how they're still surviving. And, and then the second was a story of, of a woman who uh, worked with one of the Oxfam initiatives um, with her partner needs and gradually as a fiery woman when you speak to her you'll realize that there's a leader there Mm -hmm. and 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 she gave us lunch she had a small canteen kind of a place for for the people in that village and and she was talking of self-help groups she was talking of savings she was talking of road and and you know what really took my Away. She said, you know, this is an area where rafting is going to work. Wow. <laughs> get, well, that get, is a leader. Yeah, yeah, yeah that yeah, is a leader. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> She's saying, get the ra- rafting done here. It'll change our economy. And, and that's that was really the pitch from her to me. You know, l- look at her understanding that this man is coming from outside. No point talking about the road or, or a hand pump. She, she was saying, get the rafting industry started here. It'll change our life here. So, fiery woman, it, it, it's 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 fascinating. I've met a lot of elected representatives. I must say, and these were all local governments. I I really liked it mm-hmm. because uh, at least in my conversation with them, I could see a very strong rootedness in their communities, and and that I thought was very positive. And it, uh, and you, you think the policies are correct? Policies are working. The change is happening when it comes to local level uh, government. So, you know, because I work on these issues, mm-hmm. I, I'm very cautious commenting on it because mm-hmm. I I do know that you know these two three days 
it, it's so inadequate. It, it's really more of getting a feel of what's happening. So for me to comment on the local policies would not be fair. Mm -hmm. But what I can certainly say is that there's so much more to be done, as in poverty is still there. Uh, I, I could see, you know, I met a, a whole neighborhood of former bonded laborers. Remarkable that the government ensured that they get freedom. But mm -hmm. what is this freedom? You know, freedom is also about dignity. Yeah. Have we been able to ensure a decent livelihood for them? Decent education for their children? So those are questions which confront us um, every day. Constantly. Yeah. Constantly. It's something that uh, reminds us uh, there's so much work to be done. And it's never ending. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's never going to end. <laughs> no, let's be optimistic. <laughs> we will create a just and equal world. <laughs> if you had to define poverty, how would you define it? So poverty is uh, you know, at, at multiple levels. But, yeah. but what I often use is that we must have the conditions which ensure a life of dignity. So if, if you have that condition, those conditions which gives you a life of dignity, hmm. then I would say you're not poor. What is that li uh, life of dignity? Obviously, your very basic needs are met mm -hmm. from food to shelter to clothing, but also things which are often not seen as part of the, uh, the, the, the dignity basket, so to speak. Access to education, access to health, mm -hmm. um, access to energy, etc. So, so it is really about uh, uh, reaching, ensuring a minimum level, a living standard where people can then, uh, you know, really get into the potential of what humans are supposed to do. I'll get started from this saying, I, I, I was looking into a lot of things and one thing that caught my eye, which I'm sure you've already realized, if there's something that catches my eye, write it down or I just talk about it. Nobody should have a billion dollars. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> tell, tell me, do you agree or not? <laughs> in, in a world where they're talking about somebody about to go out and have a trillion dollars. Yes. We're, we're, we're coming down to a billion, right? So I don't, well, personally, I don't think anybody should have a trillion dollars. I don't even know how many zeros are there in a trillion dollars. That's going to take care of a lot of things for a lot of people around the planet. It's the same for billionaires. <laughs> it's the same for billionaires as in, uh, yes, so, so our inequality report which we released in Davos, does talk of, it, it does predict that within 10 years, we will have a trillion now. We will, right? We will. That's, that's what the numbers tell us. And um, on the other hand, coming back to your question, I, I, I really believe that billionaires are a sign of policy failure, complete policy failure. Just imagine that, as in, in this world, and, and, and I feel both angry and upset, uh, that 900 million people, that's 90 crore people, in the world sleep hungry. They do not get three square meals a day. And then you have billionaires. So, you know, just, I, I, I think, forget about the economic arguments. There are enough economic arguments. I think morally, it's untenable. Mm -hmm. It's morally obscene. So, so... Somebody sleeping hungry next to you and, and, and I have 
20 private yachts and jets. Ten, 10 jets and I'm just going for a birthday party across uh, the continent from, from LA to New York. You know, it's, it's, it's unacceptable. So, it's, so. It, it, it's just insane. I have a data. I have a, I have a funny data here somewhere that uh, my team came out with, and uh, I kind of want to just do that as soon as I find it. The data was talking about the amount of the amount of carbons that we go ahead and one percent. Oh, there you go. One percent of the rich versus give or take the five billion, right? So polluting the when it comes to polluting the planet, so it's more carbon. One percent of the rich go ahead and produce more carbon. Well, they go ahead and completely destroy the planet more than anybody else. So this is again from thank you Oxfam report. <laughs> it is our report. Uh, we did this. Uh, in 22 and then we have another report in 23 but but it, it's worse the top one percent are responsible for twice the carbon emissions of the bottom 50 percent twice the emissions this is slightly older report it must be more <laughs> <laughs> yes it, yeah yeah so 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 you know i, I i'm happy you picked it because uh, what we've also been arguing is that economic inequality and the climate catastrophe that we are looking at are linked. So it's, it's, it's important to recognize that. that. That we've created an economic system which is essentially built on exploiting the natural resources, exploiting Mother Earth more and more, and uh, where the, you know, the, the eventual objective is not about an equal or a just world. No. It is about more and more profits at the cost of anything. And, and that's that's something that now we are recognizing as in the harm that we have done already to Mother Earth is, is, is a disaster. One thing that I'll grab right now is when you when you were here earlier early on, let's say uh, two decades ago, less cars, less vehicles. Now this time around, it takes <laughs> you an hour to get anywhere, yeah, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. So, at, at the cost of being unpopular in Kathmandu, <laughs> with, with the current <laughs> the current generation, I, I must say that uh, when I came here for the first time in two thousand one, yeah. it was a calmer city, much lesser uh, vehicles, much lesser pollution. I really, really felt nice, relaxed, but now again the city is like any other metropolis, bustling with vehicles, sadly pollution. So you know, th there is a question that we need to ask. Uh, as you know, I come from Delhi. That's yeah. that's that's home for me. You know, there are increasingly studies saying that uh, family uh, individuals would lose seven to eight years of their life just yeah. living in that city because of the pollution. Hmm. Is that the cost that we want to pay for living in a metropolis? Seven to eight years. Yeah. That's new. That's that was probably new for me. I, I was reading up about the amount of uh, lung damage. Yeah. So, but 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 now there are reports which are saying seven, it's to, eight seven to eight years. Seven to eight years. Yeah. That's a lot. It is. It is. As in, why, why should I give up eight years of my life and and also an un unhealthy existence for living in a metro? So, so there, there is a need for all of us to take a pause and really re-question the economic order that we have created. Uh, pandemic, let's see, a few things. Pandemic, um, the rising... Rising cost of everything, inflation. Uh, 
well, there, I don't know how many wars we have right now. Um, I just know of a few, at least one or two that uh, are highlighted by the media across the globe. I'm sure there are many more. Yeah. Especially the pandemic and the inflation right now. How has that actually escalated uh, the problems? Yeah. So, so if you look at um, the data, mm -hmm. it's uh, since 2020. Mm -hmm. Uh, again, our report, I, I would really urge you to have a look at the report. It says that the billionaires, uh, the top five billionaires have doubled their wealth since 2020. Uh, this is the time when the billionaires have added uh, $3 trillion to their wealth. And on the other hand, as I said, you have 800 million plus people sleeping hungry. There are, again, 800 to 900 million people whose... Um, Wages have not been able to keep up with inflation. It's the same period. So what we've seen during the pandemic is that at the top level, people are actually making more profits, mm -hmm. whereas the common people are becoming poorer. So this, this you know, our, our headline this year was five billionaires doubled their wealth and five billion people have become poorer. That's 60% of the global population during this post-pandemic. Yeah, four years, three, 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 three plus years. Three plus years. Yeah. And, and so, so, you know, this, the economists are constantly saying this is really a K-shape recovery. So the rich are getting, getting richer, richer and the poor. poor are getting poorer. So, so that's, that's, that's what uh, the pandemic did. And yes, the, 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 the wars at this moment, it is making the world very unstable. Hmm. First, I would really just uh, express my solidarity with uh, the people in Gaza. It's, it's painful, you know. What kind of a war are we waging in this world that you have more than 8,000 children dead? Eight children. And uh, you have 25,000 people dead. Uh, I have 33 colleagues who live in Gaza. Mm. Uh, all of them have had to move houses. Every day we're connecting with them more for just to hear that they're safe. Mm. It's a painful story. So Gaza, but, but as you said, there was being waged across. across. So we really don't know w what's happening. On, on the one hand, as uh, somebody who works on issues of development, on, on people's rights, I think there's so much to be done to build a better future for all of us. And what we're really doing is destroying it in many, many ways. One uh, specific word that I'd like to go ahead and ask you and get your perspective on it, taxes. <laughs> yes, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> is, there, is there a way out? Is there a solution so that everybody pays uh, their fair share of taxes <clears throat> around the world? <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. And, and, and fair share of taxes is something which is critical. We've talked of poverty. Mm. We talked of lack, lack of, say, educational health. Uh, a lot of this has to do with the resources that the governments have. And what we're increasingly seeing, let, let, let me give you an interesting data. E even in the developed countries, mm -hmm the corporate tax has actually been halved since 1980s. Mm -hmm. uh, and on the other hand, you're seeing 
public education system, public health system, safe drinking water being starved of resources. Declining, yeah. So taxes are central to the solutions that we have. And, and you know, every dollar that you don't pay in taxes is actually one less nurse who could ensure a safe delivery. Every dollar that is not paid in taxes means a less school teacher who could ensure that, that our children get educated. So taxes, I would say, you know, you're talking of fair share of taxes, but we believe that you also need more taxes. So certainly fair share of taxes, mm -hmm. but also uh, taxes on the super rich. So we, we, we need uh, a wealth tax and inheritance tax. It, it, it is really taxing the super rich. They'll probably not even know. <laughs> but, but let, let, let me, you know, you started with a billionaire. So let me give you another billionaire sure. perspective. Sure. <clears throat> Warren Buffet, mm -hmm. as you know, he's always been the top five, of seven rich, yeah. richest people yeah. in the world. Yeah. Uh, he says that what a system uh, that we've created, that mm. my secretary pays more taxes than me. Yeah. He's famously said this. So, mm. so there is, again, the tax system needs a rehaul. What is the reaction of, uh, not, uh, let's say, not just rich, but uh, super rich or ultra rich? Uh, I'm sure you've, you've, uh, you've directly or indirectly met them. Yeah. What's their reaction when uh, you're talking about it openly, let's say, in a place like the Economic Forum or yeah. in other forums around the, around the globe? So... The, as you would imagine, every position has different responses. But let me start with the positives. Yes. One, I, I, you know, and, and you can obviously say that that's a selection bias. I do meet a lot of billionaires. Mm -hmm. and, and they do recognize that there has to be much greater taxation. <clears throat> and and uh, there are many of them who would be happy paying more taxes. But uh, let me also say that... Uh, it's not just bilateral conversations. We have a group called Patriotic Millionaires who've actually written publicly uh, saying tax us more. So it, it was fascinating. I, I, I was in, um, uh, in the World Economic Forum mm -hmm. in January yeah. at, at Davos, and I met a group of millionaires who came and said, thank you, you are doing the right campaign, and they are also doing a campaign called tax us more. So people recognize uh, that there is, at the moment, a flawed way of taxing the world, where the super rich get away by paying very little, and they have a much greater responsibility. But yes, you're right, there, there are some people who uh, think that this is not the best of <laughs> proposals. When you see the greed, yeah. when you see the greed, yeah. I'm not going to take names, obviously. I'm not even going to yeah. use the, the amount of zeros people have. Like, when you see the greed in people's uh, I don't know, eyes, let's say, let me just stick with the eyes, how does it make you feel personally? So, you know, I, as I said, I feel very angry. It's, it's not about just the individuals. As in, what makes me feel more angry is that as societies we accept these levels of inequality. Yeah. As in, we'll always have bad eggs. Yeah. But it is about how can a society look away yeah. when there are people dying of hunger and somebody, as I said, is flying 
in their private jets just for a birthday party. You know, that's that's the question. So it is, you know, and, and I feel surprised that it's how, how do we normalize these levels of inequality? Would we do this in a family? As in, I, I don't think, even in an extended family, as in you, your third cousin is also uh, hungry, and would you still do it? Probably not, as in you, you will not fly in your private uh, jet. You'll ensure that at least there's basic food. How can we not get something as fundamental as this? Something as it's a human instinct yeah. uh, to to at least uh, ensure that your your brothers and sisters around the world get uh, the basic necessities of life. I know that you're part of various think tanks. So, when to be specific? Uh, have you had conversations with think tanks here in Nepal and? Uh, <coughs> What's your thought process? I remember Shreya was picking up on that earlier yeah, in the yeah, morning when we yeah. earlier earlier before yeah. we started the podcast. Uh, what's your thought process when it comes to here and what she was also mentioning? I just picked up on that uh, early on, even before I came down. What's your thought process on that? Like, how important are think tanks, and how important <coughs> are the conversations that come out of think tank think tanks? That that's very very valuable yeah. for policy making. So I, I think uh, think tanks are very critical. They are the space where you do independent thinking. Yeah. Uh, we should not be in a rush that whatever the think tank says gets translated into policy within two months or three months. It takes time because very often think tanks are thinking of alternatives, which is not the set way of functioning. Mm. So, you know, if you look at think tanks, they would be doing two or three broadly different pieces of work. Well, one is to actually uh, analyze what's happening, hmm. how the policy is getting implemented. And they would have small tweaks as suggestions. That's something a lot of governments do actually pick. And, and that's, that's worthwhile. Hmm. But the second piece <clears throat> is to actually look at long-term policy frameworks. And that's not going to happen quickly. It, t it takes time. But 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 that's really the the role of think tanks, and and they'll do it. They will be persistently bringing out uh, that mm -hmm. research, facts, data analysis. They'll gradually win over new champions. Those champions have to be somebody from the bureaucracy, somebody from the political system, people like you who play a very important role from the media. You know, once you start um, recirculating those ideas, they become more central to the public sphere. And and that's that's really the critical shift that, that happens and, and, and that's important. But the third <clears throat> I think which is important, I love it, it's it's a, a, a romantic role of think tanks, mm -hmm. which is of thinking of fundamentally different alternatives. So today if you look at say in Europe, that there, there's so many groups which are now talking of degrowth. You know, we, we started from talking about Kathmandu, how it's become congested. But uh, you would probably not hear people talking of degrowth. And I completely understand because it's a different uh, context here. But people are talking of degrowth, that, that you just cannot sustain this level of consumption in the world. And therefore, we need to uh, reduce the growth that we work with. So you know, that, that's an alternative worldview. And, and, and it, it, it'll take time. Uh, so so that's, that's something very romantic, I would say. But uh, 
it takes much longer. So think tanks are critical. Please invest in it, respect them, uh, ensure their autonomy, that they're able to think freely. Uh, they'll help the country. I'll, I'll give you a very different perspective. <coughs> I might sound naive in this when I say this. Uh, early on, uh, when I was flying back home, uh, I was uh, at the lounge and I was just looking around. There were a lot of friends who I was just overhearing a conversation, and then the, the, a couple, and then one of the one of the partner was like, "I want to go and check out uh, X Y Z luxury goods uh, store," and that got me thinking. I was like, "Oh yeah, of course. Let me go ahead and check it out myself as well." Yeah. Any piece of any piece of uh, item there was above an X amount of dollar figure, right? It's insane. Yeah. And so when I entered that ex that luxury store, apparently the next day I come back home and I was just going through social media. That's the number one store in the planet. The, the company is valued the most in the planet, bigger than anything else that we consume, anything else that we use on our daily lives. It's it's valued more than everything else. So. Again, when it comes to degrowth, the amount of consumption that we tend to go out and do on luxury, yeah, that's insane. I agree. I lost my mind. <laughs> Good, you lost your mind. You, you must ensure. <laughs> the question is why. Like the question that I asked myself after I came back, yeah. and obviously found out that that ABC company was one of the biggest in the planet. Yeah. When it comes to dollar figure, I was like, why? The question I asked myself was, what is so important that the marketing went so right, let's say, for that company that we want to consume that product? And my question to myself was, why would we do that as human beings? But uh, obviously, I'm sure you, <laughs> you ask this every day. I, I ask this every day. And, and I'm glad you're asking this question. And I, I hope you make many others feel that this is insane. You know, that, that's really the point, that uh, it, it is a mad, mad rush towards consumerism. And that's something which we certainly need to address. Because, you know, I don't want to make it a philosophical conversation. Mm. We can make it a philosophical mm. conversation, mm. as in you and I certainly would have our own philosophical underpinnings into how we look at the world. But there is a direct consequence on people of this mad rush. Mm. That's, that's the point, where you can't look away. I was talking of hunger. What it essentially does, it's this economic system where you are not be, not be willing to pay higher taxes, but invest in those luxury goods. And you know, I, I can come back to the corporates and, and maybe we, sh we should because you've brought this up. Uh, corporates are accumulating more and more wealth. And that is that wealth which could have been redistributed. Is it being redistributed? It, it, it should it? be. It, it's not. So, so you know, no, no, thank you. Let, let, let me just, you know, because that, that data is again very important. Can you imagine that the top largest uh, corporations in the world, their net worth is more than, you know, this, this is shocking, the net worth of the top 10 largest corporation is more than the combined GDP of every country in Africa, Latin America, and Caribbean. The whole, the whole let's say, two continents and more. Yeah, that's, that's what it is. Just 10 corporations. 
and and these are the continents where you have also hunger lack of safe drinking water poverty crime poverty people dying of 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 conflict uh they are the ones who are now facing the climate catastrophe and i i live in 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 nairobi and if you look at the horn of africa uh sudden four years of drought mm-hmm. which has never happened uh consecutive four years fifth year agriculture season floods 5 million people have been displaced this is clearly climate catastrophe is not something that's going to happen 30 years in future it's it's happening now so so you you need to take this bigger picture and and you really cannot sleep comfortably once you start looking at this picture so you know again as i said you know you 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 would hear me i i'm not so bothered about those individuals who are running to those luxury stores i i hope god gives them wisdom <laughs> but but if they don't it's for them to fend for themselves but how can we not make the right political and policy choices that's the question for us you use the word and i'm definitely going to dive into it not just politicians i'm not going to just pinpoint on politicians globally yeah. we have our own fair share of politicians who are doing good let me let me start off by saying sticking with a positive note when it comes to actually governments implementing it have you seen a, a posi- let's say a positive story that you'd like to go ahead and share with uh, my audience governments actually implementing let's say uh, a specific uh, thing on climate within nepal or across southeast asia or around the world uh, let me start off by uh, climate any any solutions that the governments have implemented that you'd like to go ahead and talk about that we could adapt yeah so so there, there, there's several solutions hasn't you know the conversation we're doing today is not about getting angry about the immediate context that we live in at least the perspective i have is really looking at the, the broader lot, picture the yeah. broader the bigger picture and in that i must say that there are several steps being taken you know for for instance i'm coming from now just taking you back to kanchanpur sure um and uh, uh, we are working i talked of that uh, uh, community which was the uh, which former uh, bond labors they have actually done a nature based solution for ensuring embankment of uh, a small tributary of a, a very polluted river so let's let's hope that that's going to hold and that's that's happened because of what oxfam does what our partner uh, needs does but also because of the local municipal corporation so th- those are government interventions and you will find many of these interventions mm-hmm. across the world so i started from very micro let me take you to a slightly macro sure or not slightly that's that's big one if you go back to the 60s 70s 50s we were all making big dams really big dams as in i'm talking of all over the world sure yeah. uh, and 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 uh, we realize that the dams have a massive cost an environmental cost a, a human cost and now we are looking at you really don't see any new big dam being commissioned in in fact in places like canada you are even seeing decommissioning of 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 big dams that's again a shift policy shift because you have recognized what the environmental cost of of this level of intervention is 
even from a different dimension. We have just got in Dubai when um, the COP happened, uh, uh, which is the Conference of Parties for Environment. Uh, we have got a loss and damage fund. So, cut, you know, the money is very small. We mm. need to do much more. But the recognition by different governments that we are responsible for the damages that communities are going through. So you create a fund. So, so there's several steps being undertaken. That's how I would look at it. However, the fundamental shifts are not happening. As in, you're, you're still looking at, uh, if I remember correctly, uh, almost a trillion dollars of subsidies uh, to uh, the, the fossil fuels. And on the one hand, you say this is responsible for climate change, and other, on the other hand, yeah, on the other hand, you're 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 subsidizing them. So 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 there are fundamental problems as well. So yeah, that's how I would look at it. There there's some positives, but a, a huge amount of ground to cover. Let me let me let me pick your brain on uh, this one line: burden to developing nations. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's a lot of burden to the developing nations or least developed nations who want to come out of it, who want their growth. We do need our growth. We need our roads. We need, Lord knows, I could talk about this for all, above, yeah, yeah, yeah. all day. What about the developed nations? Do they have more to go ahead and contribute on this? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. As in, totally. <laughs> Good that you're asking that. I, I would very strongly... Uh, urge that we do not lose this framing. It is uh, 300 years, 400 years of colonialism, imperialism, racism, which has ensured the accumulation of wealth in the North. And therefore, at this moment, uh, you need to ensure that the, the global South, where a significant number of poor people live, are compensated for the injustice done. So, you know, e e but but even in in, in uh, international negotiations, you have this framework which is called common but differentiated responsibility. So, the North has that responsibility of ensuring that those resources flow from the North to the South, because you know, just going back to the the point that we discussed about carbon emissions, most of the people actually live in countries like India, Nepal, uh, in, in most parts of Africa, carbon neutral life even today. Mm -hmm. So the real emissions are still happening uh, in, in the north. As in this, this is, this is not to say that India and China, who have now become to in aggregate uh, numbers, serious contributors to pollution. I'm not saying that. However, but even within India, it's a small segment which is really responsible for this, uh, this uh, uh, contribution to the carbon emissions. So, so absolutely bang on. We need to have the right to develop our nations as well so that we, we catch up. Yes. We want to catch up. 
We definitely want to catch up. I'm not talking about anybody else, none of our neighbors. I'm not I'm, I don't want to get into that. Obviously, yes. our neighbors have their own uh, muscles yes. uh, that uh, they tend to go out and flex in the global forum. And uh, us coming from a small nation, we do want to develop. We do want to get out of poverty. We do want to go out and give better roads to each and every human being who lives in this part of the planet. And I totally, totally agree with that. You know, my only request to all of us would be how do we also learn lessons? from the mistakes that uh, other nations have done. <laughs> it's important to learn from history. You have to. Even Oxfam, if I was not mistaken, World War II played a big role, uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, in the inception of Oxfam. Oh, it is, it is. Uh, so during World War II, that, that's really the inception of, of um, Oxfam. And I thought it was a fascinating idea that uh, a group of, of committed individuals got together at Oxford to say that irrespective of what our government says, we must ensure that food is delivered to places where uh, people are not being able to access food. So, Amitabh, there is, uh, I know I have limited time with you. 49.75% of the world, I don't know if it's your data or it's a data from somewhere we picked it up, uh, uh, of the world, world's population represents women. Yeah. Inequality needs to be addressed. It's a big part of your mission. It is, it is, yes. Uh, economic inequality, is it increasing every year? What does the data say and uh, what's the future like? In terms of gender? Yes. So, this is uh, a data which I'm sure is universally accessible, mm -hmm. accessible, but let me bring again one of our reports. Sure, yes. sure, it works. Uh, there is... Uh, uh, our inequality report in 2020 focused on the gender gap. And, it, you know, it, it's, it's again mind-boggling. Our report highlights that $11.3 trillion, $11.3 trillion, that's, that's, that's a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. That, that would be like four India GDPs, <laughs> yeah? um, uh, is um, being contributed by women to the global economy through underpaid and unpaid care work. So, you know, just imagine, isn't there stories after stories? I'm sure if you just go out, the way patriarchy works, it's the women who would wake up, and I've seen that, you know, in, 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 in across the world. Women are the ones who wake up, will ensure that they're taking care of the cattle, they will go in, in a place like my country, India, I've seen women walk two kilometers to get water. water. They bring water back, ensure the children are fed, they're sent to school, and then the, the woman would herself go to a construction site, work, and come back. Okay. You know, that's, that's the reality, and, and this happens across. So taking care of the elderly, of the families, household, all this is being done by women. So, you know, just... just Looking at the under uh, the unpaid care work itself is is now something that all of us are focusing on, mm. and we need to fundamentally change that. And then they are getting underpaid. I, I'm sure you know that that across the world, very often, for this even the same work, women get lower wages. Mm. Uh, it's pretty much the same work, but women would get uh, uh, lower wages. So, so I would say. The picture still needs to change dramatically. There are some um, attempts to address it, but but 
we were a long way off as we continue to live in a patriarchal world. And that needs, you know, patriarchy needs to be done away with. Future? Changes, Oxfam is definitely working towards it uh, within Nepal as well. What have you learned? Uh, and obviously, let me touch base on India too. And because uh, open border, we definitely have a lot of resemblance. We have a lot of things in common. Let yeah. me just put it put it along that yeah. line. Yeah. Uh, I can touch base with Bhutan as well. Let's say we have, sure. a, we, have a, we have a lot in common within the three countries that we have. What have we learned in uh, X amount of years, let's say in a decade? Uh, and what, what are the solutions that we would actually implement uh, and what could we learn from? There are solutions. What we need is the political will to implement those solutions. And very often I must also say that, and I am intentionally saying mm. now, this is the political will. I'm not saying the policy choices. Yeah. Because I, you know, politicians, policy makers are smart people. They do know the different policy options but they often do not have the political will to implement uh, the changes which would ensure the fruits of development, the fruits of change, ensure or, or reach in an equitable way to every citizen. And that's, that's, that's what we need to work on. Um, it's, it's work in progress, but, uh, but we need lots and lots of work. And, and, and communities need to really start asking for more from, from their governments, from their politicians, from people like us uh, who are here to, to serve communities. Roles of uh, INGOs and NGOs? Yeah, so the roles of INGOs, NGOs, I would say, that's a question I keep working on. Um, I, you know, I, I would say very quickly, there are broadly three kinds of roles. One, just to provide charity, which is worthwhile. You know, when you have a flood, you need pretty much everybody trying to help. Mm. The second is development, uh, which is investing in long-term development through education, providing safe drinking water, uh, which is, again, a worthy cause. However, the third one, which I think is the most important, is to hold power to account. Ultimately, we elect governments. There is a social contract. As citizens, as people, we give so much of our power to the governments. And I'm saying they should tax more, they should have more resources, but holding them accountable for the commitments that they make, whether in their political manifesto, their election manifesto, or just even bigger, you know, just look at the UN Declaration of Human Rights. 75 years of UN Declaration of Human Rights and we are completely faltering. So holding power to account is what the NGOs certainly must do. You know, that's that's really the role of civil society, and and uh, I hope they can do that. You know, something that uh, over over a span of and I don't know how long have we we've been here. There's one word that we've been constantly talking about, and the word is called water. Yeah. We live in a planet where we are not being able to provide people with water. Yeah. That's the most, let me, let me just go ahead and say it, I, I might be wrong in this, that's the most basic thing that yeah. everybody deserves. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, absolutely. And we're talking about it sitting, <laughs> sitting here sipping water, yes. that people do not have water in this planet. Yes. Yeah. Where have we reached? What have we done? <laughs> what have we done? What is the society we have created? Uh, 
why have we normalized these levels of injustice and inequality? I would say that this is injustice. It's it's not just that we have not been able to reach them. So, you know, my, my request to all of us is to fundamentally uh, change the gaze that we have. The gaze is not about saying, oh, these are poor people. It's not about the poor people. It's looking at ourselves, what kind of systems we have created, which does not even ensure basic safe drinking water to every person. You know, that's that's the question we need to ask. How can we sleep comfortably? I said this uh, uh, once earlier, but, but I really think that when you see such cross injustice all around, such levels of deprivation around the world, how can you just go on uh, living a comfortable life? It's like I do this and if in the evening I go to a pub and, and, and just have three drinks, you know, there's, there's something wrong with me, not with the person who's not getting water. Uh, let me track back on this. Uh, I don't know how much time I have with you. How did you get started uh, in, in, in general in, uh, <laughs> in, in life? <laughs> in life? <laughs> I, I started on a happy note and I, I'm, I'm still happy. Uh, but, uh, but I did start, you know, it was an interesting uh, uh, entry for me into this world. And I would say uh, I did grow up in, in, in privilege. And uh, but that privilege ensured that I was constantly in touch with the real world. So so so, thanks to my parents who mm. were like constantly saying, "Come on, look at the real world." And and then I was I think a good student of social science. <laughs> and when you really get into what you're studying seriously, it helps you give that framing. So you know, as I said, from the family, maybe it was the heart that comes in. Yeah. But, but then when I started reading, understanding that, that, that you know, there are larger systems uh, which need to be changed. So it's, it's, it's been a journey. I've just been, uh, <laughs> you don't realize. Uh, yeah. And, and I, you know, I would really say that maybe I'm privileged that I get to work directly on this. But I'm absolutely sure there are hundreds and thousands and millions of people who would have m maybe more passion than me in wanting to build a just and equal world. It is about, you know, it's, it's really reaching out to them, kind of reaching out to their sense of justice and saying, let's change the world. Very beautiful, very, very beautifully, very beautifully put. And uh, obviously, I have to go ahead and uh, talk about the forum. How did that go? And oh. uh, how was how it, by the way, before I forget? <laughs> yes, the World Social Forum, it was, uh, uh, I would say, remarkable. Mm -hmm. I loved it. The energy that you saw uh, of people uh, from around the world, yeah. from indigenous people to um, uh, women, uh, rights activists mm. to, to young people from around the world, few people from Latin America, mm. but, but still you had, had them and, and then an uh, enormous number of people from, from Nepal. Yeah. And, and all of them you know, with, with that level of diversity, still the idea, the dreams of, of building an alternative world. I think that's inspiring. You should have been there. That was not a good time to be in New York for you. <laughs> uh, but but uh, it, was, it was really inspiring that how people 
located in their own context, but they still have common dreams. Hmm. And that inspires us. And I, I'm sure people would have gone back with that inspiration of trying to change their immediate realities, but also the macro picture of this world. I'm, I'm always interested in, uh, I'm 36, I love hanging out with uh, and listening to very young people, uh, you know, because they have the best ideas. Yeah, yeah. And they have ideas that they want to go ahead and implement as soon as possible. And obviously there are some ideas you can implement right away, some need a little bit of time, but that patience definitely runs out when it comes to young people, which I love it. I generally love it, right? I love, I love picking in that. Did you meet uh, the youth and oh, yeah, uh, what did. kind of conversations did you, you have? I met lots of uh, young people. I, I was, in fact, um, uh, the opening speaker for the uh, Intercontinental uh, Youth Forum. Yeah. And I really enjoyed it. As in, it started with uh, there were lots of slogans on on solidarity for Gaza. I, I loved it, but uh, the conversations. I I, I, I think uh, you're right. There, there was you know this sense of impatience that we're not going to live with this. And I think sometimes you do need that impatience uh, to to say that we will change the world here and now. And and. Uh, I, that radicalism is also critical. Sometimes when, when things don't move, incremental change also sometimes gets stuck. That radical approach to changing the world is critical. And, and, and young people have that. They have their energy. Um, and, and one conversation that we had, I, which I think is interesting, mm -hmm. the recognition that the change is not going to happen in uh, comfort. Overnight, too. <laughs> Yeah, but, but also I, I think that it, it was a deeper point that, that it certainly will not happen overnight, but, but on the other hand, it will not happen living just the, the way we live. Hmm. We will need to pay a cost for that change. So, you know, the young people talking about courage, uh, because when you start changing things, there's going to be a backlash. But you're not going to be timid and get scared because of the backlash. Hmm. You will say that, okay, I, I withstand the pressure, but we will walk the path uh, of, of building a more just society. And so that I thought is, is an important learning and, and you know, radical people have greater courage. <laughs> and great ideas. Uh, Open-the-box open ideas are even better. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I tend to like that more too. Uh, when it comes to our part of the planet and uh, Nepal itself, uh, anything specific you'd like to go ahead and share that Oxfam's working on and thought process that you have? So, uh, Nepal uh, has a robust civil society. Work We work with the civil society. And if you see our work, we are working at... You know, at, at multiple um, levels uh, around the idea of, of how do you build resilient communities, how do you ensure that uh, the impact of climate is, is now, uh, the communities do not suffer. We also have work on, on gender justice. Mm -hmm. We are working with young people. So it, it's a whole range. Yeah. But essentially the idea is that how do you intervene with uh, the Nepali NGOs in ensuring that people recognize and realize their own power in, in shaping their destinies. Very well put. Very well put. And uh, where are you off to next, if you don't mind me asking? No, no. <laughs> I'm going to Nairobi, which is kind of home for me. And I guess 
get a couple of weeks rest. Mm-hmm. Good, good. I'm, I'm, I'm glad. Thanks for thanks for coming by. And uh, we touched base on a lot of things. Obviously, uh, this is actually when I get started. <laughs> but I don't have a lot of your time. <laughs> no, but thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It's, it, it's always good to have a conversation which is relaxed, which is honest, and which is, uh, which is forward-looking. It has to be. It has to be always. Thank you so much for your time. And Thank next you, time when you visit us, I don't know whenever that is, at least if I get more time, I'd love to pick your brain more. Thank you. Thanks a <laughs> lot, Sanjay. Thank you. Thanks. Awesome. Perfect. Perfect.